This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Matt Splained on this Friday. My name is Rich Bradbury and that carbon-based life form, Matt Armitage. He tried to get me to read the lyrics of the Beatles' Here Comes the Sun today uh, for the intro, but I'm not going to do that because I'm the one with the power. Hey, Richard. Um, yeah, well, that's exactly why I wanted uh, you to quote Here Comes the Sun because mm. today we're talking about power. We're talking about harnessing the power of the sun. So we often uh, cover topics relating to energy on the show, um, but it's usually things along the lines of, you know, battery technology, renewables. Um, it might be stuff that powers tiny nanobots. Uh, I think recently, um, to everyone's disgust, we featured a solar-powered backpack for cockroaches. Yes. Um, but it has been a while since we talked about truly alternative ways of creating energy. In fact, I looked back into uh, the archive of shows, and I think the last time I did that was uh, a pre-MSP episode on uh, thorium, uh, thorium uh, nuclear generation, and that was over a decade ago. Wow. Um, yeah, I know. It's ages and ages. So uh, thorium reactors uh, represent an alternative to the kind of uh, uranium plutonium light water reactors that are typically used around the world today. Um, those are generally thought to be uh, environmentally cleaner and safer. There is a, a whole host of reasons for that. Uh, it includes factors like um, thorium reactors being much more efficient, so they require less fuel and they produce less waste. Uh, and of course, thorium isn't fissile in the same way as uranium is, so it's not as suited to uh, being used for nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And it's also three times more abundant than uranium and is a lot safer to mine. I was just thinking back, you know, we could have done snap, I'm the power, couldn't we? Um, but I'm showing yeah, our age right then. As well, yeah. yeah, I could, yeah. could have done that. Uh, but anyway, back, back to thorium, of course. Uh, do you think we're seeing uh, an increase in interest in thorium? Well, of course, thorium isn't what we're focusing on today. You know, we're focusing on the sun, although you should never actually focus on the sun because it makes you go blind. Um, but, um, you know, there does seem to have been an increase uh, in interest uh, in thorium in the 11 years since that show. I think China mm. and some other countries are working on and even operating a handful of thorium test reactors, but it's still very much in that test stage. Um, it's not a magical, uh, a magic pill, if you will, for um you know, the new energy, uh, partly because research into thorium fell out of favor um, in the 1950s. So there's mm. a lot of catch up to do to determine whether we can actually scale thorium reactors. And they come with, you know, there are lots of other problems or issues rather. There are cost issues. They tend to be more expensive. Um, the types of breeder reactors that you require for thorium power generation Yes, they are more efficient, but they're kind of slower at making the power. And the spent fuel and its byproducts require a lot of heavy processing. Uh, and that in itself results in issues around proliferation of nuclear materials, because although thorium isn't suitable for nuclear weapons, some of the byproducts from power generation 
using it can be processed into materials that could then be used for radiation weapons. And I, I take it that we're, we're not looking at advances in nuclear fission this week either. Well, no, I mean, I mentioned the, the sun, um, but there is in general a lot more interest in nuclear power at the moment because, you know, we're looking at spiraling energy prices and chronic shortages of fossil fuels in many parts of the world, especially in terms of supplies of liquid natural gas, which Europe is especially dependent upon, uh, supplies of that from Russia especially. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this is the result of the Ukraine war and the sanctions that have resulted from that. Uh, a small part of it is a hangover from the supply chain disruptions of the pandemic. Uh, so you know, this year has been kind of a year of alternative energy. Um, mm. We've seen countries looking more seriously at renewable energy sources. We've looked at expanding nuclear power as methods to ensure energy security. And, you know, we're seeing uh, people come to this realization that, you know, I wish we'd considered these things more seriously and a lot sooner because mm -hmm. it takes a long time to build energy infrastructure. It takes a long time to build the capacity we need. You can't just switch out from uh, one source of power generation to another unless you had built that capacity and flexibility into mm. your infrastructure in the first place. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, all of us are electricity junkies, you know, lighting, heating, cooling, powering all those humming and flashing boxes in our homes and bags and hands. I mean, I can't even, the, the number of powered devices that go into us just recording this show right yeah. now is pretty much incalculable when you take the internet into consideration. Um, and no matter how much we make those devices more energy efficient, it's always offset by the new devices that we add and that we suddenly have to have. So in pursuit of a greener world uh, as well, um, we've already pushed ourselves along that road to replacing carbon emitting vehicles with electrically powered ones. Um, is that a criticism of carbon reduction policies? No, no, not at all. I mean, it, it's more an acknowledgement of the, the lack of forethought and planning that the pandemic brought into sort of sharp relief in so many areas, the lack of resilience that's built into our societies. You know, before the pandemic, resilience was this word that you hardly ever heard in a societal sense unless you were involved in the world of NGOs. Mm. You know, we blithely thought that the tools to create our electricity was safe, secure, and pretty much permanent. You know, need more electricity? Well, we can import more oil and gas while we build up our stock of renewable and alternative energy capacities. But that's a roadmap that requires geopolitics to be stable. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much anything but the world that we find ourselves in in 2022. Right, uh, yeah. I mean, just to give an example, um, despite the energy shortages, the very short-lived UK Prime Minister and uh, incidentally MP for the town I grew up in, uh, Liz Truss, well, uh, was, yeah, yeah, she's my, I didn't she's know that. my, She's my mum's constituency MP. Yes, Downham, Downham was briefly the town to know. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Liz Truss was uh, poised to block the creation of new solar farms in the UK. And nobody really knows why. It's 
thought that possibly she had a personal dislike of them. Um, now, we know solar energy generation, it's not perfect, but this is a really strange time to limit that growth, right. especially as solar farms was a really uh, a really booming economic sector in the UK, which is a country that's desperately in need of booming economic sectors. Yeah. So, so despite the stark realities that we found ourselves in this year, those at the top of the decision-making pyramids don't appear to be acting rationally or necessarily in the national interest, or in some cases, in any way that acknowledges those realities. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, uh, it doesn't matter. This is a new week. That means a new British prime minister. Uh, and at the rate they're going through them, I imagine Richard or I are, are going to get our own turn in a week or two. You know, arguably, depending who you speak to, we might do a better job. And at least I, we've got a podcast. Well, yeah, it's possible. Um, I mean, I, ideally, I see myself as more of a, a kind of president or an emperor than a, of a prime minister. Yeah, you know, absolute power. Um, uh -huh. But Unfortunately, I'm currently subordinate to King Jafar, um, who has made it perfectly clear that he would use nuclear weapons against these squirrels that are attempting to eat his biscuits. So um, probably it's a good idea to keep my hands away from the engines of power. Mm. Um, but it is engines of power that we're here to talk about this week, um, not in terms of solar or renewables or even nuclear fission. We're talking about fusion, nuclear fusion. Um, you know, typically when we talk about solar energy, we talk about harvesting the power of the sun. What we're talking about here with fusion is recreating the power of the sun. And over the last couple of years, we've seen a, a rekindled interest in nuclear fusion, um, both from uh, state um, institutions as well as commercial startups. So I got a lot of uh, what you're about to hear from New Scientist, uh, a piece by Thomas Lewton, imaginatively titled, as ever, by the New Scientist. <laughs> uh, Can a slew of nuclear fusion startups deliver unlimited clean energy? I really want to see what they, their, their scores are for their, their headline titles. I, I'm going to say that they, they have to have somebody looking at their SEO for them, surely. Come on. I, I mean, I guess, you know, it, it's one of those websites that if you're into it, you go there already. So you mm. click on the thing. So maybe they don't need to, uh, uh, they don't have to beef up their SEO in the the, the same way that Bored Panda does. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that I, I agree. They could do a bit more. Uh, they could put a bit more effort in. But anyway, according to the New Scientist, there is a huge amount of money flooding into this sector. Uh, in a recent report, the U.S. Fusion Industry Association, which which is a group that represents around 30 private companies, uh, have declared more than $3 billion in investment uh, with an additional $117 million coming from government funding. Uh, one company seems to be uh, attracting a lot of the attention in this gold rush. It's a company called Commonwealth Fusion Systems. And I know that sounds like the villain in every sci-fi B-movie, yeah. um, but the Massachusetts-based company has raised more than $1.8 billion after it demonstrated uh, market-leading uh, magnetic technology, which we'll come back to in a little while. Now, um, just a heads up, I'm going to ask you about hot and cold fusion in, in just a minute. Uh, but for folks listening at home who might not know, um, briefly, 
explain <laughs> how nuclear fusion works, because I know you can. Yeah. Um, what a loaded question. Thank you so much. Um, regular listeners will know that asking me questions like this is a bit like asking a mouse to fix an iPhone. Um, science is uh, something I'm more comfortable talking about than understanding. Uh, so uh, cribbing it from a new scientist and uh, some other handy sources. Like Wikipedia. But not limited to Wikipedia. Um, my skill is being able to read the science entries past the first paragraph without my vision blurring and my finger twitching on the Netflix tab. Um, in nuclear fission, uh, an example of which is our nuclear power plants, energy is released as, uh, as the heavy atoms, um, the heavy atoms of uranium decay. Uh, you can kind of think of it like leaves falling off a tree or maybe blowing the seeds off a dandelion. Mm -hmm. Nuclear fusion, on the other hand, fuses things together. So fission uh, is elements decaying. Fusion is elements fusing together. Um, this next bit I took from New Scientists because they can actually explain this stuff without talking about dandelions, daisies, and leaves. I was um, expecting Ozzy Osbourne. You know, I'm hearing about heavy metals and heavy atoms, but hey. I will know. get there. Don't worry. Um, All right. To, to create... To create fusion, you fuse the atomic nuclei of very light elements like uh, hydrogen to form heavier nuclei. So the total mass of each nuclei that's formed is less than the mass of the pair of nuclei that created it. That's actually quite straightforward. You know, that's yeah. a bit that even I can understand. Uh, the law of conservation of energy, energy isn't destroyed, it's only transformed. So that missing mass from the new nuclei is released in these massive bursts of energy. And that's effectively how stars work. Um, you know, when we talk about our sun burning, it doesn't burn because there's no oxygen, so there's no fire. It's mm. the fusion of hydrogen nuclei into helium. Um, delightfully si uh, simple. I really wish I'd paid a lot more attention in chemistry <laughs> and physics. <though. laughs> okay, um, so how does that differ from cold fusion? Well, you know, we look up and we see nuclear fusion every day, um, less so at the moment because it's rainy season. And no, uh, I'm not saying that when it rains, it puts the sun out, um, although that would be really fun to see. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so we, we're not seeing the sun as much at the moment, but it is still there. It's making its cosmic ready break, which is a reference that hardly anyone will get. Um, but we know um, how nuclear fusion works. So we can replicate it here on Earth. And that's what we'll get into after the break. But typically, to create that fusion, stars reach temperatures of millions of degrees. So this is where cold fusion comes in. The theory of cold fusion is a nuclear reaction that happens at or around room temperature. Now, various scientists have claimed that they've produced experiments where cold fusion has occurred, or they've created models where it could happen. But as yet, we don't have any accepted scientific model or replicable experiment that proves cold fusion is possible. There's still a, a group of researchers looking into it. Uh, it's often not called cold fusion anymore because, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of sort of baggage attached to that term. It's often mm. referred to now as low energy nuclear reactions, L-E-N-R. Uh, and again, there are various organizations that have claimed or claim to be operating uh, low energy nuclear um, reaction reactors. But as yet, 
um, we haven't seen this reality. It remains, you know, one of those grails of science fiction that researchers have yet to turn into the reality that science fiction writers would like to see. Wow. You, that's about as clear as a mirror. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> uh, now, uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, uh, Matt Splained fuses more science with uh, nonsense right after the break. You're tuned in to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9. Bias-free media. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. Welcome back to Matt Splained. Matt tries to explain. Uh, this week, Matt's not a scientist. Genuinely, not a scientist. Matt Armitage is helping to explain, I think he's trying to explain, the future of nuclear fusion. How, here's a question, right? How do we go about replicating a star on Earth? Well, before I get to that, I actually spent most of the break polishing the uh, filthy mirror you were referring to before. Um, but no, um, how do we go about replicating a star on Earth? Well, yeah. it's actually less difficult than it sounds, or rather, it's as difficult as it sounds, but it is possible, um, not just in theory, but in practice. What we have to get beyond is not whether it's possible, but whether the scientific possibility can translate into electricity generation at industrial scales. Mm. So, you know, going back 50 years or so, nuclear fusion was promoted as this source of almost limitless cheap energy. And over the last 70 years, there have been so many boy who cried wolf announcements associated with it that we struggle to think about it in a credible sense. You know, mm. our imagination starts to take over. I mean, I don't know if anyone remembers uh, back when they switched on the uh, Large Hadron Super Collider or whatever it was called a few years ago. Uh, and there was this fear that some of the experiments could create a black hole and yeah. that the black hole would suck our planet into it and, you mm -hmm. know, we'd suddenly be ripped apart. But the rather more prosaic truth was that Yes, a tiny black hole might wink into existence, but it would wink back out almost as quickly. And this is kind of what all those startups are trying to do with fusion energy. They're trying to turn um, these kind of expensive science experiments into something that resembles a, a commercial product. God, you got to love scientists. Now, apart from the obvious part that we're trying to replicate the behavior of a star why is um that's a bit a bit of a broad question why is fusion such a hard nut to crack well it is actually the obvious thing we're trying to replicate the behavior of a star right. um you know stars are these incredibly unstable things um as new scientist points out you know think about solar flares these emissions of unstable plasma that erupt into space with no warning at millions of kilometers per hour. Mm. You know, solar flares and solar storms from our sun cause disruption and destruction on our planet. And that's basically a line from Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Two Tribes. <laughs> I told you we'd get to Ozzy Osbourne. Um, <laughs> 
disruption and destruction, who wants to die, I think the line is. But anyway, if you're trying to produce nuclear fusion, you want to avoid the unstable elements like solar flares, obviously. Uh, so not only are we trying to replicate this behavior, which happens at immense pressures and temperatures, we're also trying to control it and to limit the kind of instabilities that are inherent in it so that we can harness it and produce energy that we can use without you know, creating all of these dangerous side effects that go with um, nuclear fusion in nature. Um, would you like to ask me how they do that? Well, I mean, you're very good at explaining what the problems are. Uh, yeah, <laughs> explain it, how they do it. <laughs> Fundamentally, well, I want to know. The, the typical way is inside a special machine, which is called a tokamak. Now, Of course it is. Of course, of course yeah. it is. Um, yeah. So these use donut-shaped reactors uh, that use magnetic fields that actually levitate and control the plasma. See, I told you it was completely simple. You you put magnets in a donut and you can control the plasma. Easy. And levitate, yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, thank you to new scientist. Um, once the uh, plasma gets hot and dense enough, um, you get to a stage where the ignition occurs. So this is the point where that fusion reaction actually becomes self-sustaining. This is the point where you can start to generate power. And... As pretty much impossible as that sounds, we have actually seen a lot of progress in recent years. Um, in August of this year, the Korea Superconducting Takamak, uh, Tokamak Advanced Research Device created a fusion reaction that lasted 30 seconds. Now, I'm not sure that South Korea mentioned that it was about to create a tiny sun, but, you know, I could have missed their <laughs> press release. Um, but now, this is... The mind-boggling bit. I mean, the whole thing's kind of mind-boggling, so I guess this is the meta-boggling bit. Their reaction created temperatures that are six times greater than those in the sun's core. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have problems even imagining yeah. the temperature at the heart of the sun, let alone six times that temperature or that it was produced in downtown Seoul. I mean, it, it kind of makes those one or two um, uh, degree increases of global warming look just a, a tiny bit lightweight. I, I, I'm just wondering who they told they were about to do this, you know, because by the time they switch the thing on and off again, it's already done. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? What, what little sun? What do you mean? Um, yeah, and, and uh, millions of Seoul residents suddenly have a, a, a hot flash and they are, oh, what's happening? <laughs> okay, um, but let's go back to the little bit about magnetic fields. And we, we talked about that um, company that sounded like it was from Terminator, Commonwealth Fusion Systems, or even Rob uh, Robocop. Um, all about this novel magnetic technology. Tell me more about that. Okay, so yeah. Um, so again, paraphrasing new scientist here, um, the, the company has demonstrated uh, magnets that are made from a special high-temperature superconductor. Now, mm. this means that they pack twice the power um, that we find in most 
current tokamaks. So in theory, this means that you can exert more pressure on the fusion plasma. Uh, this also helps to prevent heat escaping because you're increasing efficiency. So you should be able to build, using this method, smaller reactors. Um, CFS, Com uh, Commonwealth Fusion, claims it will be producing reactors uh, that output more energy than goes in by 2025 and that will be capable of generating energy continuously uh, by the end of the decade in 2030. Do you think then that, I'm going to use this word, I love this word, do you think the size of the Togamaks is one of the factors holding the industry back? I, I agree with you. Um, I, I agree with the question, but I agree with your comment about the word tokamak as well. It's, it's great. It's a great word. I hadn't heard it before uh, doing the research for this, and now it's one of my favourite words yeah. ever. Um, no, one, one of the um, issues with the experimental tokamaks that are used for academic research purposes is that they're huge and they're so complex that it can actually take decades to build them. You know, it's like right. building super colliders. Mm -mm. Uh, for example, the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, uh, which is currently being built in France, it's been delayed multiple times. It should be ready towards the end of the decade, but costs have already spiraled to about $22 billion. Oof. Yeah. So unless we kind of look for this fresh approach, it's unlikely that nuclear fusion will be an answer to our energy needs for decades and decades to come. Mm. And there's also the purpose of those reactors. I mean, I mentioned uh, uh, the one in South Korea and being switched on for 30 seconds. These are designed as experiments. They're designed to be fired up for short periods, uh, 30 seconds or five minutes. They're not designed to create continuous energy at an industrial mm -hmm. scale because mm -hmm. they're for research purposes. The scientists do their experiment and then they spend months analyzing the results. So they're not necessarily building them with components that are suitable to sustain a permanent reactor. The materials that they use are designed to meet the purposes of that experiment. They aren't necessarily going to withstand the heat and pressure uh, over, you know, long durations. Mm -hmm. So we get to a point where we know that theoretically we can start those reactions and maintain them to generate electricity, but we don't have an industrial or commercial style reactor that will actually check that theory. So we get to that ignition part, but we don't mm. get beyond that to, to sustaining to generate power. What, what about startups though? Isn't, isn't this where, you know, startups can get involved? Well, Partly, and this is where, as usual, it gets more contentious. So when we talk about nuclear fusion, we've got decades of public research. There's settled science. Um, what a lot of the startups seem to be betting on is that they can do something similar to, to what we've seen over the last 20 years in the private part of the space industry. Mm -hmm. um, because those private space companies are motivated by cost rather than being paid for from a public purse, they focus on being innovative, nimble, um, they create products that can be reused. Mm. And of course, SpaceX is the model that, that people usually go for. Um, it's a startup that now does a lot of the heavy lifting, literally for NASA, because it focused on building reliable, reusable rockets. Mm. So you have companies like Commonwealth Fusion, where 
innovative technology should enable them to build smaller reactors, reactors that are faster and cheaper to build. And we're seeing the scales tipping according to some academic researchers. A lot of research institutions are now running calculations and doing modeling for these private companies. So there's this growing body of thought that nuclear fusion is now more of an engineering challenge than it is an academic one. And do you think those engineering challenges uh, will be any easier to overcome than the academic ones were? Well, this is where we get into those debatable areas. Um, On the one hand, there are companies like uh, Canada's General Fusion, which is a great name. Hello, General Fusion. Um, You know, they're they're trying a a concept that was uh, developed by the US Naval Research Laboratory back in the 1970s. Uh, That model combines uh, a tokamak, I love saying that word, with an approach called inertial confinement. Um, Paraphrasing new scientists again. So, This basically uses magnetic fields to levitate the plasma, which is then compressed by liquid metal pistons. All of this stuff is possible. I know it sounds impossible, but all of this stuff is possible. But it sounds awesome. Yeah, no, it does. Um, But when the Naval Research Lab did their concept testing in the 1970s, they didn't have the technology to synchronize the pistons precisely enough to make it work. And of course... We do have that technology now. Uh, A more recent uh, example of public research is the California-based National Ignition Facility. Uh, There, there's a team developing a technique called inertial fusion. Now, what they do is aim 192 really powerful lasers at a small capsule. Um, The new scientist says it's about peppercorn-sized. And the lasers cause... Uh, the peppercorn to implode. I I mean, of course they do. I mean, there's 192 (laughs) powerful lasers. A peppercorn would explode. Um, But as it does so, the atoms crush together and they create that fusion reaction, that initial burst of energy to start that uh, that reaction. Uh, In tests last year, they were able to create the world's first self-sustaining nuclear fusion reaction. But this is where those engineering issues come back in. So far, they haven't been able to replicate the experiment because any imperfections in the capsule mean that when the lasers hit, fragments of the diamond casing around it shatter into the plasma stream, and that disrupts that fusion reaction. And there's an enormous cost. Despite it being the size of a peppercorn, each capsule costs in excess of a million US dollars. So, you know, when we talk about engineering challenges, these are very, very expensive issues. They should just, you know, tap the UK prime minister for a bit of a a loan because I'm sure he can afford it. Um, But anyway, (laughs) coming back, with this expenses then, where does that leave us? Well, I mean, take the um, the the example of uh, that that we just talked about. Uh, a UK startup called First Light Fusion is doing something along the same lines, but they're drawing on an example from the natural world. They're drawing on the snapping claw of a pistol shrimp 
for right. inspiration. Now, of course, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now that isn't as crazy as it sounds. For people who don't know, the pistol shrimp generates enormous amounts of electricity, uh, of energy rather, with its claw. Um, it feeds by snapping the pincer, which creates a shock wave in the water that actually stuns its prey. And as it does so, it creates these extremely high temperatures. So um, we've mentioned uh, pistol shrimp on the show before. Um, Some years ago, we mentioned the example of the US Navy using snapping shrimp to mask their submarines during World War II because they create so much noise um, that the submarines were undetectable by sonar. They just disappeared into this kind of fog of noise created by the shrimp. Uh, So in first light's approach, a projectile is fired at high speed uh, at a fusion fuel capsule, and that creates a reaction similar to the shrimp's claw snapping. So if they're successful, this could be a cheaper and more uh, replicable route to create fusion. Um, And these aren't the only developments. Um, New Scientist uh, mentions companies in the UK and China that are using a new form of uh, spherical tokamak. Um, Spheres have a smaller surface area than donuts. I can't believe the things I'm saying today. Spheres (laughs) have a lower surface area than donuts. So eat a sphere, not a donut. Um, But this allows the magnetic fields to operate more effectively. So this is another way that you get to build smaller tokamaks, which mm-hmm. again mean faster and cheaper uh, reactors to produce the, the electricity. All right. Um, prediction time. Is there any kind of consensus on when we might start to see commercially scaled nuclear fusion? Well, You know, a a lot of the startups seem to be taking this within a decade approach. So uh, we said um, uh, Commonwealth Fusion was aiming to have something operating by 2030. Mm. Uh, The feeling of some of the academic researchers is that it may be a few decades longer than that. And they say that there is a false equivalence in the comparisons to the space industry. Uh, You know, by the early 2000s, when we saw this influx of private capital into Uh, the space market, if you will, we had already been sending people into space for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. So yes, we have over 70 years of nuclear fusion experimentation and research to build on, but we don't have even a single example of a sustained reaction being used to generate electricity. Uh, Some critics have also pointed out that although a lot of development is being put into perfecting the reactions and uh, and the industrial applications, no one's paying the same amount of attention to actually creating the fusion fuel that will make those reactions possible. A uh, new scientist, I think, quotes Tony Donne, who's the head of a group of uh, national fusion labs called Eurofusion, and he likens it to inventing cars, but without thinking about the petrol stations that make it possible to use them. Right. right. So it, it leaves us in this weird position. Despite the potential that nuclear fusion um, has, it's never been seriously funded by governments. So private companies are, you know, picking up that gauntlet, but as cost effective and thrifty as they are, it's still going to require sort of vast amounts of speculative capital and considerable time before we get to the point where we can generate electricity. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
the space industry is an example of the successes that are possible, but this isn't the space industry. Uh, at the same time, we're badly in need of these resilient new ways to create electricity. You know, it, in a very real sense, our, our future and even the development of our future depend on us having access to electricity. Mm. Um, and at this point, it doesn't really matter whether it's, you know, renewables, nuclear, fusion. If technologies look like they can deliver cheap, abundant and relatively clean electricity, governments should really be coming together to pour money into these institutions and companies, regardless of whether we're likely to see the results in the, in the short term or, or the medium term. Really interesting stuff this week, Matt. Thank you very much. Yes, and I would just like to add one more thing. Mm. Tokamak. I was going to say, if you're ever on the lookout for a good band name, today's show is a winner. We've got Tokamak, we've got Eurofusion, we've got, what was the Commonwealth one from the UK? Fusion Systems. Commonwealth, yeah, even an album name. Please do have a listen back to this show. Um, Matt, where can people uh, check out the notes for this show? What, will they find out more information? Uh, they can come and check out the Culture Pop Substack. So just go to uh, the substack.com. Look for Culture Pop or go to substack, uh, culturepop.substack.com. You can also find the stuff on Culture Pop's website, www.culturepop.com. Um, or uh, look for me on the various social media channels where I really am. And if you missed any part of this show, you can download the podcast from uh, the BFM app. Uh, that's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. We'll be back same time, same place next week for more Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.